Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Glad that you're here. The weather is cooler. We got five drops of rain. It's a good day. So, man, oh man, I tell you what. So it's good to see all of you. And those of you joining us online, we welcome you as well. And uh, looking forward to our study time together this evening. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to study your word together tonight. I, Lord, I thank you for your presence and for how the Holy Spirit is our teacher, guides us into all truth. And Lord, as we read a letter tonight that was written 1960 years ago, Father, it's still just as relevant to us as it, as it ever has been because your, your word is eternal. And we know that tonight, and I just pray that you would teach us what you want us to know in the culture in which we live, to live out our faith in a way that is pleasing to you and makes an impact upon the people around us. God, thank you for everyone who's here, everyone joining us online. I pray your blessings upon them as well. May you honor our time together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in a session number three now of a Bible study entitled Culture Shock. And we're looking at uh, 1 Peter that relates so much to our world today. And, uh, of course, we know so much about Peter's background. So it's really interesting for us to read this because we know the writer pretty well. We're familiar with him through the Gospels, his personality, everything that he did in following Christ. And so uh, it, it really makes it, I think, even more meaningful knowing the writer as well as we do. So let's begin, first of all, by reminding ourselves of what's going on. Through this letter. It's been about 33 years since Jesus was crucified and resurrected. This letter was written around 63 AD and Jesus crucified 30 AD. So it's been about 33 years since Christ was crucified. And the letter was written to some Gentiles who believed in Jesus as Savior. They are now living not around Jerusalem but hundreds of miles away in Asia. They're living in the Pontius Bithynia area of what's today modern-day Turkey, just south of the Black Sea. So you may wonder, how in the world, in only 33 years, did believers get from Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away, all the way up to the Black Sea? Well, most theologians believe that, remember, Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was crucified at Passover, uh, if you remember, 50 days after that, Pentecost there was preaching and that people from all over the empire were there they heard the gospel 3,000 of them got saved they went back home and, and their newfound faith in Jesus they shared it and others got saved and so most Bible scholars believe those believers way up there north of Jerusalem became, became believers became Christians at Pentecost and so now for 33 years they've been living their faith and been growing in the faith for all that time. Just as a side note, at that sermon in Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2, who was the preacher? Peter. This Peter. So he is probably writing to people who got saved under his preaching back at Pentecost. So it's been 33 years now. And they're up there trying to live their, out their faith. But the area in which they're living did not understand the Christian faith. They opposed the Christian faith. And they subtly persecuted Christians up in that area. Now, don't be mistaken. At the time of Peter's writing, 
the persecution had not become deadly yet, and it not had become formal yet. What do I mean by formal? Well, later on, around 112 AD, so 50 years from the writing of this, the Roman Empire made it illegal to be a Christian. If you were a Christian, you could be executed because it was illegal. Now it's not. So at the time of Peter's writing, the persecution was mostly discrimination against Christians, social persecution, you were excluded from friend groups, uh, cultural marginalization if you're a Christian, uh, verbal abuse, people would talk badly about you, mistreatment of, from your colleagues and workmates and all of that. But it really wasn't deadly yet to be a Christian, it wasn't illegal to be a Christian. So, that is almost identical to our culture, isn't it? It's not illegal to be a Christian in America. Nor is it deadly to be a Christian in America right now. We're not, I don't have the fear I'm going to be killed tonight because I'm a Christian. But, we have subtle persecution in America. We have discrimination against Christians. I don't think there's any doubt about that. There is social pressure persecution if you're a believer. Culture marginalizes us if we're Christians. Verbal abuse, mistreatment maybe by some colleagues or, or workmates. That's exactly what they were facing. So what Peter had to say to this group almost is an exact parallel to us. So that's why it's a good book and why it's entitled Culture Shock. Culture didn't understand Christianity. They're living opposite of Christianity, much like our culture. So it very much relates to what we're going through. So what he said to them is applicable to what it says to us. Now, it would be about another 30 years after this book was written before Christianity became deadly. That was about the time of Domitian and the book of Revelation was written. Christians were being killed. And it was about 50 years before it would actually become illegal to be a Christian. Pliny the Younger was the, uh, the emperor at the time uh, that really started to ramp up Christianity becoming illegal and them killing people for the faith. So what Peter did was this. He wrote this letter to a group of Christians in a culture that was marginalizing them because of their faith. And he wrote to them and he said, I want you to remember what you have and I want you to remember how to act. So tonight, if I had any advice for you in living out your faith in our culture, I would say the same. Remember what you have in Christ. And second of all, remember how you are to act. Now, so far in the letter, he is, we're to, to verse 8 tonight, verses 8 through 12 is what we're going to look at. So far in the letter, he has begun with the introduction, verses 1 and 2, that's very common in these days, you began a letter with introduction. Today we just say, hey y'all, that's our introduction. But they, they, was, they were a little more formal and they said, so he said, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's the introduction. A lot different than us just saying howdy. So then he went from that, verses 3 through 12, into a hymn that they knew. Remember last week I began with the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's a, it's a hymn you know. And it's a, it's a hymn that if I were to say it, 
I, it doesn't need an introduction. You know, I'm quoting the doxology. Well, verses 3 through 12, the fragments of a hymn back in those days that everybody knew. So he began with the words of a hymn. And in this hymn, he tells them, you have in Jesus a living hope, verse 4. He tells them, you have received an inheritance that cannot be lost. Remember, we talked last week about security of the believer. And he said, your salvation is kept in heaven. It's reserved there being guarded. And it is reserved by the power of God. So he's very strong on what you have in Jesus you're not going to lose. And then he told them that you're going through various trials. Multicolored is the word he used. Trials. Um, that you're encountering these and the testing of your faith, the trials you're going through, produced in you what the testing of gold produces by fire. So that's where we stopped last Wednesday night. In our passage tonight, Peter continues with the words of the hymn that everybody knew. And so the verses 8 through 12, words of the hymn that he kind of talks about a little bit more in detail and then he closes with the hymn. Next Wednesday night, we'll start looking at then what advice he starts telling them. That will start in verse 13. So tonight, let's finish up the words of the hymn because he, he says some really interesting things I want us to look at. So letter A on your outline, first of all, not seeing yet believing. Verses 8 and 9, not seeing yet believing. Listen to what he says, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now or now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now let's stop there and look at verses 8 and 9. He says some really interesting things. Notice in verse 8, the first thing he said was, even though you have not seen Jesus with your eyes, you love him. Now, the believers up there in, in Asia, south of the Black Sea, they had never seen Jesus physically. When, when would they have seen him? He never left the Israel area. They had never been to Israel except coming back for Pentecost, coming back maybe occasionally to Jerusalem. They'd never seen him with their eyes. They lived up there. They came back. They got saved. They had never physically laid eyes on Jesus. And Peter says, even though you've not seen him physically, you love him. That's unusual. Usually, sight produces love if there's somebody out there you've never seen before it's hard to love them deeply isn't it you, you may love them superficially you just don't know them you've never seen them but here's a man they've never seen but they love enough to give their lives to die for him that's highly unusual 
And usually knowledge brings love. The more you know somebody, the more you love them, right? If it's your child or if it's a whoever it is, if it's a close friend, the more you get to know a person and see them with your eyes, the more you love them. But if you don't get if you don't know them that well and you never see them out of sight, out of mind, it's hard to love them very deeply. But here's a man they never saw in person. And they never knew, but they loved dearly. That's really unusual. Now remember, Peter had seen Jesus with his, with his eyes. He followed him for three and a half years as a disciple. He, he saw him after the resurrection. And if you remember, after the resurrection, when Peter saw him with his eyes... Do you remember the question Jesus asked Peter? Peter, do you love me? And he said, you know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. So Peter uses a phrase that may not mean much just on the surface, but start looking underneath. And he's saying to these believers, you love him as much as I do. And I saw him. And I knew him. And he asked me, do I love him? And I said, yes. And you love him. But you've never seen him. Notice Peter mentions love, not faith. He could have said faith. Faith precedes love. You don't, that you don't love God before you come into a faith relationship with him. You, you love him after that. It's kind of like mentioning the fruit before you mention the tree. He could have reversed the order. He could have said, even though you've never seen him, you have faith in him. But he doesn't mention faith first. He mentions love first, which is really interesting. He could have reversed the order. Now, notice how verse 7 ends. Go back to verse 7 that we ended with last week. So that he tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, and maybe found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in other words, when you finally get to see him, that's the revelation of Christ. So he goes right into mentioning, you're finally going to get to see him. Oh, by the way, even though you don't see him now, you still love him. Peter was not saying, I saw him and you didn't, so I love him in a way you never will. He didn't say that. He was saying, you've never seen Jesus with your eyes, but when he is revealed at the revelation, you and I both will see him in a way we've never seen him. Now, whenever I was a boy, I used to think, how cool would it have been to live when Jesus lived? I used to think that. And I remember thinking, man, I wish I'd lived when Jesus lived. That would be so cool to see Jesus and see all the miracles. And man, how I would love him if I could have just been there and seen him. I used to think that. Until... I read the passage in John where Jesus told the disciples right before the crucifixion, it is good for you that I go away. Because when I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to lead you into all truth. 
And it's going to be better here with him than it will be when I was here. You see, whenever I was here, I could only be in one place at one time. I could go to Capernaum or I could go down to Jerusalem. I could go up to Sea of Galilee. I could go to the Jordan River. But I was in one place at one time. But when I'm going and the Holy Spirit comes, wherever you go, I am. And I began to realize it wasn't an advantage to be here when Jesus was here and to see him with my eyes. The advantage is to live now where the Holy Spirit can make Christ right where I am, everywhere I go all the time. So we have the advantage now. And then he said, though you do not see him now, in verse 9, you believe in him. Peter must have had in mind the words of Jesus to doubting Thomas. You remember that story? After the resurrection, Thomas, I'm not going to see unless I believe, unless I see the prince in his hands and touch the prince in his side. I, I was there when he was crucified. And unless I see those, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus said, Thomas, you have believed because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. So Jesus was no less real because they had not seen him physically. Even though they were experiencing persecution, they believed. Faith outweighs sight in believing in Jesus. Faith is greater than sight. So folks, tonight, don't feel sad for yourselves that you never got to see him physically. You're better off by seeing him by faith. I've talked to people before. Well, pastor, I just want to see Jesus. I've asked him to reveal himself in a vision or a dream. I just want to see him. Why? It's not an advantage to see him. Your faith is the advantage. And that's what he was telling them here. Now, look at the last phrase of verse 8. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And look at the last phrase. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let's talk about that phrase for a moment. So was Peter saying, you're going through persecution now. It's not good in your culture to be a Christian. But one of these days, you're going to be so joyful in heaven and full of glory. And No, he's not saying that. He, does, he uses present tense verbs right now in the midst of persecution you are you have joy that's inexpressible and you're filled with joy right now joy inexpressible what does that mean that means a joy so profound words can't describe it the joy that goes beyond mere earthbound joy now, I've been a pastor of Baptist churches my whole life. It's all I've ever done. And it has been my experience in Baptist churches for years that there is not much rejoicing going on. And there's not much joy inexpressible. Let's be honest. Well, we're glad we're saved, but we don't rejoice. We're, we're glad we're Christians, glad to come to church, got a great church to come to, but we wouldn't describe our joy as, it's, it's so good I can't even put it into words. 
That's not been my experience. Church members feel that. Why not? Paul says, or rather Peter says, it's a present tense. Now, where you do find joy inexpressible and full of glory in people in churches, it's very unusual. And the other church members kind of see them as odd. Well, they're sure happy about their faith, aren't they? And whenever you do find it, it usually comes from a new convert. Not a Christian who's been saved for years. It's usually a new Christian. So excited. Joy inexpressible. I can't put it into words. And you go, oh yeah, you'll calm down. Should be the other way around. You've known him longer than they have. Where's your joy? You've, you've served him longer. You know how faithful he is. Where's your joy? Why do they have it and we don't? And the longer you're saved, it wears off. I remember whenever I first became a Christian, I was nine. I was really, really excited. And I talked about it in church all the time. Until a member of the church told me, don't talk about that so much. It's not that big a deal. They're, they're exact words. So I thought, oh. So I stopped. And I became like them. No joy. So, in many cases, whenever we talk about salvation or the cross, those that have been Christians the longest have an attitude of, I've heard that. Heard it my entire life. Yeah, yeah, that's true. In fact, I have a sermon that I, that I have preached many times in different churches. I think I preached it here once, right after, right after I came years ago. And the title of the sermon is, The Most Boring Sermon in the World. And do you know what the topic's on? The cross. And I entitle it that because every time I preach on the cross, you've heard the story for years, and it's old. Ho-hum, I've heard this. I've heard this my entire life. And it's just that you've heard it before. So whenever I preach on the cross, more people sleep than any other sermon I preach. They do. They've heard it. It doesn't move them anymore. And then I run across a phrase that Peter says, you have right now, present tense, joy inexpressible and filled with glory. They've been saved 33 years. 33 years. And they still have joy that can't be put into words. There's an old hymn we sing, I love to tell the story, will be my theme and glory. 
And one of, the, one of the stanzas of that hymn is, I love to tell the story for those who know it best. Seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Uh-uh, that's not true. That has not been my experience. And every time we sing that, I'm sitting there going, yep, that's not true. That has not been my experience that those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Now, so tonight, if you don't feel the joy of your salvation, I would do a spiritual checkup because you have some symptoms that are not good. Doesn't mean you're going to die, doesn't mean you're not saved. But if you go to the doctor and you have some symptoms that something's wrong, doesn't mean you're going to die, but it means something's wrong. And tonight, if your joy is gone, if it's not inexpressible of what God has done for you in Christ and salvation, those are some symptoms that aren't good. So he infuses into us at salvation. Those that have never seen him but believe in him, they rejoice with joy inexpressible and they're filled with glory. Look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word obtaining does not mean you have to work for your salvation or that you can buy it. It means you receive it. The word obtain in English means you buy something. That's the connotation I think of anyway. So it's kind of maybe an unfortunate English word that translates the Greek word. The Greek word just means to receive something. You don't buy salvation. You don't work for salvation, but you receive salvation. So you've received it as the outcome. In other words, the end result when you die and go to heaven, that will be the reward of your faith, the salvation of your souls now does this mean our soul will be in heaven but not our body he says our soul is saved doesn't say anything about our body well he was not talking about now the now the, the Greeks separated body from soul and soul from spirit and you had dichotomy or trichotomy and they would separate, but the Bible knows no separation. When your soul is saved, your whole person's saved. It's not just what's on in here, the rest of you not. Body, soul, spirit, you're all saved. And so he's saying here, whenever he says the salvation of your souls, he's not just saying the inner part, so you're going to be floating around without a body forever. It's not what he's talking about. The word soul here literally meant the entire person. Suke, we get the word psychology from it. Suke or psychon that's used here literally means all of you, every part of you, mind, body, soul, spirit, you're going to be a complete person in heaven, not just a spirit floating around. So you're going to have a body as well. That's what he's talking about, obtaining the outcome of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, let's go to letter B on your outline. The Old Testament prophets wondered about what you get to experience. Let's read verses 10 through 12. We'll discuss those. Concerning this salvation, Peter writes, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them 
was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 12, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the last phrase, things into which angels long to look. Now, a couple of interesting phrases there. Let's talk about those before we close tonight. Jesus, when he was here, told the disciples the exact same thing. And Peter is saying here, you as Christians possess something very valuable. You possess salvation in Jesus. And what you possess, there are two groups who would love to know what you have. And get to check into what, you're, what you experience. Old Testament prophets and angels. Old Testament prophets never experience the salvation you do. And angels never experience salvation like you. So let's look at what he said. Matthew 13, 17, Jesus said... For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see. And they've not seen them. They've desired to hear those things you're hearing. And they didn't hear them. The Old Testament prophets. Now, remember who he's writing to. Gentiles up, in, up on the Black Sea. Would, would they have known anything about Old Testament prophets? They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. But actually they would have because their Bible was the Old Testament as we know it. So they would have known everything about the prophets that they, they did. One of the major themes Peter writes about is salvation. And he said the Old Testament prophets prophesied a day, Jesus, when salvation would come and it would produce both suffering and glory, both. So Peter says, whenever you're going through suffering, that was predicted long ago for the Christ. And you will experience glory, and that was predicted years ago for the Christ. So as believers, whenever you suffer, so did Christ. And whenever you are glorified, so is Christ. You are experiencing the same things as Jesus, Isaiah 61, verse 3. But the prophets were confused. They preached this, but they didn't know what Jesus would look like. They had in mind a Messiah who's going to be a military leader. And so they preached you're going to receive suffering and glory both like the Messiah. But they were confused. They're going, I don't know how those fit together. How does the Messiah suffer and be glorified both? Because they envisioned a military conqueror. So if you remember, some of you remember our Revelation study a while back. In the Revelation study, I told you that a lot of Jews today believe there are two Messiahs. One who suffered, one who was glorified. They still believe that, some of them, that there will be two messiahs. Because how do you put into one messiah both suffering and glory? Well, you and I know his story, and we know how it happened. He suffered, then he resurrected. 
But they didn't, they didn't connect that. And so the Old Testament prophets, even though they preached the message, they didn't know how it would fit together. So Peter followed Jesus. He wanted to hear nothing of Jesus' suffering. Do you remember that? Remember as Peter is following Jesus? Jesus one time was going to tell him about all the disciples, about I must go to Jerusalem. told him three times, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer and die, but it's okay on the third day I'll rise again. And Peter rebuked Jesus one time, called him aside and said, Jesus, come here. What are you doing? What's with that dying stuff? You're not going to die. You're the Messiah. Peter did that. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Looking at Peter. You don't value the things of God. You value the things of man. And so Peter was the one that said that. And he was just like the Old Testament prophets. So he's saying is, if you are suffering, that means you're like Christ. As you have he suffered, be glorified, so will you now. Folks, whenever Christians today suffer, we don't like it. And we get angry. And we get bitter at God. Why are you letting me go through this? Because we have in mind that once you become a Christian and start following Jesus, life is good. Because we hear that preached from pulpits sometimes. What Peter said was, you follow Christ, there's some suffering out there. It's okay. You'll be glorified just like Jesus suffered. And he was glorified. So tonight, if you're going through hard times and suffering... Don't get angry and bitter and don't question God. Why am I, why is this going on? What am I doing wrong? It's normal. Christians suffer. And so these Old Testament prophets prophesied those things, but they didn't know how it would turn out. And Peter says, oh, if they could see you now up there on the Black Sea, wow, they would, they would love to see what this looks like. They weren't trained theologians pursuing scholarly investigations. They were fellow Jews waiting for the Messiah to come. And they would love to see how it turns out. How excited Isaiah would have been to hold the gospel of John and read it. And how thrilled Micah would have been to read Romans. And how majestic the book of Revelation would have been to Zechariah. They'd love to see what you see. They would love to read what you read. So, they said, if you suffer, you'll also be glorified. Look at verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was, was indicating when the predicted suffering would happen. Interesting that the Old Testament prophets did not comprehend fully what they were prophesying. They were the most revered group in all of Judaism. The Old Testament prophets were. They preached truth as fact when they had no idea how things would turn out. But I want you to notice one little phrase. One little phrase. You probably overlook it as I just read it. But it's really important. And that phrase in verse 11 is the Spirit of Christ. In 
the Old Testament prophets. So what he's saying was, as the Old Testament prophets preached, the Spirit of Jesus was in them to empower them. Remember, Old Testament prophets preached before Jesus came. So just that one phrase, the Spirit of Christ, tells us two things. Both of them strike down Mormon beliefs and Jehovah's Witnesses' beliefs. Just the one phrase. One phrase proves both of those false systems. Spirit of Christ tells us two things. It tells us, number one, Jesus is preexistent. They believe, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, that he was not preexistent. He was a created being. But if this tells us he existed before the New Testament, all the way back in the Old Testament prophets, and he existed in eternity past as God, he is preexistent. They don't believe that. The Spirit of Christ tells us he is. Here's the second thing it tells us. It tells us he's God. The Spirit of Christ. It's the word deity. He's God. Mormons don't believe Jesus is God. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe Jesus is God. So that one phrase from Peter, the Spirit of Christ, in the prophets, strikes down as false Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's an important phrase. So don't just overlook it. The Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, one last phrase, very interesting. We'll look at it, we'll close. Look at the very last phrase of verse 12. Things into which angels long to look. Even the angels wanted to see how God was going to work out salvation. They didn't know. They didn't know the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. They didn't know that. They wondered how it was going to work out. Sometimes we think angels are omniscient. They're not. There are things they don't know. And according to Peter, one of the things they don't know is how salvation works. They're not saved. They're, just, they're beings. So one of the points of verses 10 through 12 is that believers in Jesus in Asia could anticipate how God would work in their present sufferings. And even angels were interested in these things. The word, the phrase long to look literally means to bend over. So angels are bending over in heaven looking down to, at you and me to see how this salvation thing works. Now there are some interesting facts from scripture about angels. One fact is angels observe you and me. They observe our conduct. They observe how we act. They observe our attitudes. 1 Corinthians 4.9 tells us that. God shows his eternal purpose to the angels through the work of the church. Let me say that again. God shows his eternal purpose to the angels through the work of the church. So angels are bending over watching us learning how this works. So that's how you teach a Sunday school class. So that's how you worship. So that's how you preach. 
and eyeglasses ministry on mission trips, that's a great idea, angels would say. That's what God can do when his people are obedient to give. Now it makes sense. That's a terrible attitude from that person. Boy, that Sunday school class, they're sure full of pride. They're not about the kingdom. They're about themselves. Did you, did you hear what that guy just said? That's the opposite of what God says. Can you imagine angels bending over, observing our conduct, and looking at the work of the church? Things angels long to look into. Now, Judaism believes that angels have more knowledge than us. Jews believe angels know more than you. But this passage and other passages from Corinthians show us the angels have less knowledge than us about salvation and about the church. You know more than the angels about both. So why on earth, when you die, would you want to become an angel? Why? Oh, they're, they're becoming an angel. Why? Why would you want to have less knowledge? Angels have no clue what it's like to be a dirty, wretched, filthy sinner and the blood of Jesus cover you and give you what you never had. They don't know anything what that's like, but you do. And so do I. And they would love to look into salvation and what it's like to be saved. So what you possess is glorious. Should cause for rejoicing. Because what you have and what I have, something angels would love to have. And a good church, something angels know nothing about. You've got it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for what Peter told us, the truths. God, sometimes it, it goes against what we've always believed. Sometimes it goes against what he said, what we've practiced. But Lord, I want to thank you for the truths of your eternal word tonight. God, thank you that we possess something the Old Testament prophets didn't know about and angels didn't know about but I thank you father that in Jesus you've saved us and I pray that you'd always place within our hearts a joy that's inexpressible for what you've done for us in Jesus on the cross the fact that you've saved us so father help us to walk with you in that joy even this week in Jesus name I pray amen God bless you we'll see you Sunday